1: relax while we lovingly drizzle weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe, and on this edition, we will go to part two of the evolution of sexual selection, and we'll have a look at Nicta's bionic eye. First, here's Mark West talking to Dr. Rob Brooks.
2: What about females? We've talked about the males getting the big tails or or whatever. Do females also uh, change over time?
0: Absolutely. So, um... You know, we often talk in the field about uh, male signaling and female preferences because that happens to be somewhat more common. Uh, But in a lot of animals, um, males are actually rare, and it's the availability of males that limits female reproductive success. Uh, For instance, in uh, seahorses and pipefish, females come and they um, deposit their eggs in a pouch that the male has. So we often talk about those fish uh, the males getting pregnant, what that really means is they not, uh, you know, they don't have a placenta or anything like that, but they have a pouch that the females deposited the eggs in, the males released his sperm into that pouch, and as a consequence, um, he carries them around. Now, um, because that's, you know, the space in a male's pouch is a finite resource, there are actually fewer males uh, than, than females on the mating market at any given time, which makes males really valuable to females. And when that's the case, the males end up being the choosy ones. Okay. There's a cricket species uh, that occurs in Western Australia and another cricket species that occurs in the Western United States where the balance between male and female actually changes over the season. So in the same species, the same population, um, males are very valuable at one time and females are very valuable at another time of season, just depending on what flowers are blooming and how that... Um, influences male and female, um, the energy that males and females can get for uh, making sperm, making eggs, etc.
2: And in, in humans, uh, what sort of sexual selection do we see? I heard an interesting theory that intelligence has, be, has developed through sexual selection.
0: Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, everybody knows that it's really difficult to find somebody attractive, uh, they find somebody that is attractive to us, to uh, you know find somebody who's single um, available, and then to sort of reach the point whereby you're both willing to 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 have sex with each other, uh, possibly to marry each other or to form a long lasting relationship there's all sorts of things that can go long go wrong along the way um, and so anything. That influences the outcome of that process could be under sexual selection, so one of it is our, our outward attractiveness, the attractiveness of our face, of our skin, uh, of our bodies, etc. Um, and the, the most people with the most attractive faces and skin and bodies uh, may have more mates, more opportunities to mate, so they may also just get um, attract better quality mates themselves. So human mate choice is very, very complex, but what we do know is that both men and women choose. Both men and women are limited in how much they can invest in the offspring. Some men are are unlimited because they're so wealthy they're able to sort of splash their money around and and, um, uh, thereby attract uh, several women or even an almost unlimited number of women in the incredibly wealthy kings and emperors of, you know, bygone centuries. Um, But most mere mortals really... um, are constrained in the number of possible matings that they can have, the number of possible children they can have. And as a consequence, both men and women are very, very picky and very choosy about whom they mate with. Um, And so intelligence is very important. Um, And Jeffrey Miller at the University of New Mexico wrote a book called The The Mating Mind, in which he expanded on this idea, um, which Darwin spoke about a little bit um, early on in, in his work. Uh, the idea here is that smart men and smart women um, historically have been the ones who have been able to um, talk one another into um, into bed, I guess, but also to negotiate uh, the, the, all of the transactions, I guess, that go around mating and rearing children, etc. Been able to persuade one another that they're good mates, but they've also been able to uh, be good earners. You know smart people have tended to be better earners than folks who who weren't as smart relative to you know within the same generation um, and so that's probably put an in, a, a tremendous amount of sexual selection on human intelligence and human intelligence has been one of those traits that sort of run away um, purely because uh, we live by our wits in in human society, as m- at least as much as we do by our strength and athletic ability, etc. And the people with the, the fastest wits and the, the best political mouse, etc., have been the ones best able to get good mates.
2: Yeah, you can see how that could be a, a runaway effect, because the, well, the brain costs an awful lot to run, I guess. Absolutely. And there were plenty of hominids doing pretty well back in the day that that weren't particularly smart. But yes. You can see why it has to be a runaway to get to the... The current stage
0: it, it could well have been you know and i mean particularly because we've um d- come up with and invented ways of storing information ways of learning that information um, ways of writing it down i just read last night a paper talking about the evolution of writing probably drove the evolution of intelligence as well because we no longer had to remember everything right. we could then free up space to to more interesting and more insightful things and we could also transmit our information much more truly across the generations so that would have been an important step in the acceleration of the evolution of human intelligence but even in you know um, baboons and monkeys and and non-primate mammals um, there are probably things that are like intelligence that um, are also under sexual selection just because Individuals have been able to navigate the complexities of social life.
2: It's fascinating to think that some of these skills that we have maybe may have been dormant back, you know, back as we were evolving, uh, but now our brains don't have to be busy surviving tigers or whatever. Yeah, that's yeah. right. Uh, it's, it's a really interesting idea. And in terms of uh, your research, uh, you're your researching on crickets. What are, what's some of the other research that you're currently uh, we've doing? We've
0: done a lot of research on guppies um, and and other fish, but I don't do as much on that these days. I also work on um, mice, and uh, we're just starting some projects on mice and about the interactions between males and females, and whether males and females are sort of cooperating and doing something that's, that's good for both of them, or possibly in mating they're actually just exploiting each other as much as possible, which is another perspective on mating that's increasingly becoming, looking like it's, it's more, a more useful way of looking at mating than the sort of old Victorian idea that males and females were doing something that's just generally good for them.
2: Oh, okay.
0: Um, we're also doing some stuff on human bodies. Uh, we have an online project at um, the website uh, bodylab.biz where people can go in and look at um, some bodies that we've created using a uh, what we call an avatar engine. It's an engine where we put certain values for 25 different traits in and it spits out a model of a body um, and we uh, continue to generate more and more random bodies and we get people to rate them so that we can see how people's judgments of attractiveness might have shaped the evolution of the human body. Uh, and that's a really, a really cool site and it's got lots of links to uh, other evolution um, Sort of human evolution research. I
2: oh, yeah, I think I participated in that uh, completely independently of uh, contacting you. Oh, thanks for that. <laughs> yeah, that, that was a really interesting site.
0: Yeah, it's 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 an ongoing process because each generation, we we, ha- we ha- each month we put new models out there and we try to make the new models based roughly on the old models. So we're really mimicking the whole process of sexual selection over many generations, um, and we'll hopefully sort of unleash the power of Darwinian selection to. come up with the most attractive body type or if there's not one, uh, a suite of most attractive body types
2: Would sexual selection ever drive us to extinction? Could we become too uh, caught up on looks that sort of thing, humans and other animals
0: Well it's certainly a point that many authors have made in the past Um, there used to be a a great big deer the biggest deer that's ever lived called the Irish elk, had enormous antlers, uh, much bigger than a moose's antlers um, and there is a, a school of thought that says that the antlers got so big that the males ended up all dying and, and they went extinct. Now, that doesn't really work because uh, as soon as the males ended up sort of paying more of a cost for um, the big antlers than the benefit, they would have, um, the antlers would have got smaller. However, if you combine that with change, like a rapid change in climate, just like happened at the end of the ice ages in Europe, uh, which is when these animals did go extinct, a sudden change in climate and food and stuff might have made the horns um, a trap that you know, selection was never able to really favour the short-horned males or the smaller-horned males enough to, um, to, to, to rescue them. Uh, so the idea is out there, and it's certainly credible, that um, you know, bizarre exaggeration can cause extinction. And I suppose in humans... If human intelligence and competitiveness have both been um, sexually selected, then a combination of competitiveness and intelligence could potentially lead us to destroy ourselves or our planet and the life support systems of our planet um, in a number of different ways. So, yeah, it's a very real threat.
2: That's not a positive thought, is it? No, it's not (laughs) a
0: happy thought. I wouldn't want to end on it.
2: (laughs) I wonder then... uh, on topic, but, but slight uh, corner then, have, in, in certain ways have we stopped uh, evolution or is evolution now a different thing to what it was uh, when there was a lot more survival uh, as part of it?
0: Evolution is always a different thing to what it was um, in every generation of every species because um, you know, it, nothing happens because of what's going to be good in the future. Uh, yes. it's only going to be good in the future if things stay roughly the same as they are now now we know that in human society things are never going to be the same in the future because things move so fast and so much faster than a single generation so um, all of that evolution really does is it adapts us to face a range of circumstances that we've faced in the past um, and it, it's so it's, it's very difficult to predict what evolution is happening today, let alone what's going to happen tomorrow. But one thing I can be fairly certain of is that as long as some people are not having babies, and some people are, um, some people who are having babies are having more than others, and some of those babies are, are surviving for longer and growing up to have more children of their own, um, there will be evolutionary change, uh, because there, is, there are differences in fitness between individuals and therefore between genes. Um, What those differences are is very difficult to predict, but you might say, for instance, um, HIV. HIV is imposing a tremendous amount of selection, particularly in parts of the world like sub-Saharan Africa, where it's, you know, incredibly um, high proportion of people are infected or exposed to HIV. Um, And as a consequence, any genes that help people to avoid those kinds of... um, infections or help people to fight off those kinds of infections are going to be under a very strong selection in africa we might not be able to detect the signature of that now but it's almost certainly happening and likewise um, our intelligence and our social abilities and our um, ability to deal with the changing diets in which nobody really starves to death anymore um, those kinds of things are all going to be under selection
2: too. Yeah, there'd be quite massive, massively different selection pressures in, in say, Africa with AIDS, and and Sydney where perhaps you could imagine cultural pressures might might be the strongest. People are waiting yeah. longer to have children, and that brings about its own difference, uh, its own difficulties. Perhaps cultures change. Yeah,
0: absolutely, absolutely.
1: And that was Mark West talking to Dr. Rob Brooks of the University of New South Wales. You're listening to Diffusion Science Radio, diffusion at 2scr.com, brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast from www.diffusionradio.com. Bionic eyes are being developed by the National Information Communications Technology Australia Research Organisation, NICTA. At the Consumer Electronics Business Information Technology Show, Dr. Nianjen Liu let me play with the Bionic Eye hardware and software being developed. The show was very noisy, so you'll hear only a short segment of Dr. Nianjen Liu showing me the Bionic Eye, but you'll hear a longer interview with his colleague, Dr. Paulette Leiby. He showed me how the bionic eye is made from a camera that's mounted on a pair of glasses, the image is sent to a computer for signal processing, then beamed by radio to a grid of electrodes implanted behind your eyeball, connected to the retina. The retina is the part of the eye that collects light in a seeing eye. The electrodes create pixels on the retina that your optic nerve takes to show a low-resolution image to your brain. The first version is a grid of 10 by 10 electrodes, or 100 pixels, which lets blind people see movement and avoid obstacles. The next generation is a grid of 32 by 32 electrodes, almost 1,000 pixels, which, in the demonstration, I was able to recognise faces. Here's doctor Nianjin Nien-Jun Lu, followed by Dr Paulette Liebe, working on the bionic eye. Could you see me? Hello. Yes, yes, I can see you. Yes. And I can see you on the 1,000 yes. pixel array as well. Yes,
0: yeah.
1: Wow. So, you, I guess you could you could yes. learn to, so, to navigate. I
0: just introduced something related to the visual processing and the image processing. And after per the question about the, the color, the implants and the electrodes, how they just the implant to the neural network, and my colleague, for every one of your questions.
3: Our side of Simpson yes, Templar is vision processing. The vision
0: processing. The...
3: The NICTA people in Melbourne are developing the second generation away south of the Okay. But, uh, you know, we are part of a large national consortium. Uh, You have UNSW, you have Melbourne, NICTA Melbourne, you have the Centre for AI Research Australia, you have the Bionic Institute, you have ANU, Western Sydney, and maybe a few more, but I don't recall. So, it's a national endeavour, right? right? Um, and we are funded for four years, mm-hmm. the whole consortium. And uh, the four-year goal is to have the first retinal implant with 90, ninety-eight electrodes yes. developed and designed by UNFW. Yes. And to have it in a chronically implant, uh, in a few chronically implanted patients. Yes. That means we already could have passed at least a significant amount of trials so that in four years' time we can say person A, B, and C can effectively use this for navigation. Right. The, 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 as Nienzo mentioned, the resolution is actually low, so. So, we have our task as on the vision processing side, how you ex- best extract information from, which information you extract, how, and how you present it and how you encode it. Um, and that, yeah, that is, um, because of course you don't go very far with Right. So that is one aspect. There is another important aspect which is more on the neuroscience and your physiology. We don't really know how we respond to all these stimulation signs. You know, the, 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 the way, the electric array is yes. behind the retina. We just send electrical signals which, using the existing our existing neural network, just ends up in the visual cortex and we'll see. Mm. But no one really knows. Yeah, we do know today. If I, I fire one electrode or two, I am likely to see one or two blocks. This is normal. But that's all. (laughs) And why don't we know that more because when we do animal experiments we do a lot, um, here and in the US. We can measure, we can record, and we can image, but the animal still won't tell us what it is. So that is our task for four years' time.
1: I had heard of related research where I think some U.S. soldiers yes. were looking at radar and things through a little tongue yeah. array. Actually,
3: that is not that new. This not is that You know it's several old. years old, yes. Even the very first time someone used the uh, tongue, um, it's not a center, because it gives you information, is quite almost 20 years ago.
1: 20 years ago? Yeah. Right, but maybe
3: not in that context, but I do know mm. that has, it's quite old. And suddenly, someone was able to learn its 3 environment just by interpreting, learning the output from the, yes. the device. The it's very the plastic. Oh, oh luckily, also, I think teachers can forget all this. Yes. No, no, no. So, the, the brain idea. is plastic, and luckily, for we have enough other problems to solve before that. then <laughs> If we can get a um, proper uh, separation of uh, electrode stimulation, mm-hmm. and uh, uh, I think we have done well. So we need to learn from the new science, we need to learn from the new physics in order to inform us as to what kind of video processing we can do. So, we need to take any visual processing, any retinal processing, and cortical processing, we must take, take it to our advantage. So, when it. do you think
1: you'll be implanting the first of these 98 um, uh, pixel chips?
3: First, uh, maybe two or three years. Two or three but years? The goal is definitely four years' time. The 98 electrode should be chronically implanted. That means it would have already been trialed. And is useful, not just having spots of light, excuse me. but having spots of light that help you to navigate your Yes, you that uh, is the goal.
1: And the thousand pixel.
3: That is the second generation. It's a totally uh, different technology. Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh-huh. so it's a technology <laughs> to lead. Yes. But in four years' time, this is uh, we, NICTA is committed itself to have the biocompatibility test uh, finalized with this one in four years' time. And uh, I don't know much about this, but this is uh, the timeline for this. Because, of course, here we are talking about 1,000 electrodes, so it's an to guess it's, it's a cattle
1: I guess if you were one of the people who was implanted with a 98 pixel one, You'd be kind of, you wouldn't be able to upgrade to the 1,000 oh, pixel uh, one? know? Yes. Yes, yes, yes. You, you would? What? How does that happen? Can it's you just take it out? It's just a
3: surgery.
1: Ah? You know, so I wasn't sure how reversible.
3: Like, you cannot implant someone with something they have to keep for their whole lives. No? Right. It's like the cochlear, the binding ear. Uh, since when does this really exist? 10, 20 years? Yes, yes. But you will find people who had lots of upgrades, and the upgrade is simple surgical um, a surgical procedure mm-hmm. and he's actually uh, listening to surgeons and humans it seems amazing mm-hmm. stuff
1: i wonder if there's there would ever be a way where they wouldn't have to implant it where they could set, get the signal in from the outside of the body
3: there are actually first other groups are doing um, are doing um, stimulation of the optic nerve oh yes or stimulation of the cortex because what we do here, we are taking advantage of the fact that our retina is healthy, except for the photoreceptors. Right. Everything else is healthy, and we use this program to, twen- to process, twen- transmit, and process also.
1: So does that mean if you had something like macular degeneration, you wouldn't be suitable? <laughs> you would be suitable.
3: And the two main major target groups are AMD, macular degeneration, and retinitis retin- pigmentosa. Right, because in all these people, the retina is most healthy, except from the photoreceptors, which are
1: dead. So, in both those illnesses, it's the photoreceptors that go uh,
3: for the macular degeneration. You have uh, only peripheral vision left, and the other one, RP, is uh, you have only the foveal vision left.
1: Ah, of course,
3: over time, you have a degeneration of the whole retina, but I think that can be solved and solved. And often, mostly, most. Often people who are blind still have the retina intact. Right. Simply the photoreceptor never have never been here in the first place. Or wow! So to finish my answer, yes. there are people, there are teams who are who are playing with injecting, injecting the eye with uh, chemicals of whatever sort to render some retina ganglion cells photosensitive. Ah. On, uh, you know, all these things look interesting, but then you have all the risk to consider the long term. Does it destroy your eye? Or, uh, all these issues which I don't know, the internet is But look, if you, if you witness what happened to the cochlear, to the buying ear, so it's definitely Yes. 20 years ago, no one believed it. Entirely. To get to for the final year. So if you can achieve only half that for now, it will be great. refill. With, I think it's a risk, but I think I just want to say all these people have different approaches but all of us and this is sometimes some projects may fail because if you want to implement this on, I think for general customers, you would know that you can only do this if you never ever destroy any existing site, no this of tissues and it cannot shorten your life, it must be removed. So sometimes, like when doing the England cells photosensitive, I sometimes say you should do But everything is possible. Yes. But we have lots of work
1: Amazing technology for helping the blind to see but Dr Ninjin Liu and Dr Paulette Lebe at the National Information Communication Technology Australia, NICTA. Australia was first with the bionic ear, and now the bionic eye. What will be next? And that's all from us in this edition of Diffusion. If you'd like to contact us, if you have feedback, comments, or suggestions, if you'd like to broadcast a story on Diffusion and hear your voice, communicating science on radio, then send email to diffusion at 2 That's diffusion at 2ser.com, or subscribe to our podcast on our website, www.diffusionradio.com That's www.diffusionradio.com Contributing to the program was Mark West and myself, Ian Wolfe. Diffusion has been produced in the studios of 2SCR Sydney and is broadcast nationally via the Community Radio Network. I'm Ian Wolfe. Join us inside your audio device of choice for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio.